We are studying the life of Moses this fall. Moses is the redeemer of the Old Testament, isn't he? That points to Christ. And what we found previously is that the Israelites were in Egypt in slavery. God raised up a redeemer in Moses through a miraculous birth, through an upbringing in Pharaoh's house. But Moses tried, killed an Egyptian, ended up having to flee, and really probably thought that his time was over. He hung out in Midian for a while. Uh, he's still there, as we find him this morning, as a shepherd. And then last week we saw the beginning of the burning bush account. And we really focused on God last week and the fact that God is both holy and personal. And Moses came into contact with this God. But this week we're going to see, and, and last week we challenged a little bit. I used the term boring. Uh, I think Moses' life at that point was probably fairly boring. And I don't know that your lives are as boring as Moses's was, but we talked about how our spirituality, our Christianity, is often very boring. And then this week we're going to see maybe one of the reasons or the primary reason for that is that we don't rightly see or grasp our new identity. Moses has this new identity. We're going to unpack that this morning. Um, this, this idea of identity, there's a million examples of it, but one time in Japan... We lived there in 1998. Toward the end of our stay, I traveled with, without Emily across Japan to this little town called Kamakura where we were having kind of a retreat for church planners. I was not a church planner. I was there really just to kind of help out, observe, and, and hopefully uh, maybe learn something, right? And I remember arriving there hungry um, in a place that was even more foreign than I had felt because I didn't know this part of Japan. And all of these people, most of whom were, were Westerners, I just looked at every one of their faces and I felt pity. I just thought, how, you're a church planner, how horrible. Because I was so cranky, because I was so hungry. And I was so out of sorts. And then I thought, this is miserable, I would never do this, I can't imagine this weekend going any, anywhere. And then we go in to the to meal and fellowship time and worship time. And I met with the guy that was actually doing the whole uh, weekend it was amazing. He's from Edmond. He planted a heritage church named Steve Childers. And I met all these people, and I came out, and I remember later going, I love it here. These people are awesome. They're really neat. And I've heard their stories, and I just within about a three- or four-hour span, my whole countenance and my whole view had changed. And I was very convicted about how easily I allowed my own feelings, emotions, needs change the way I view everybody. And um, I think, even though this is a much larger scale, what we're going to look at today is identity. What is your identity? How do you view yourself? How do you view the world? Because what we find with Moses, and I love it when you know the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, moves at such rapid breakneck speed that when it slows down and gives us these five responses of Moses, we really do need to focus in and take them seriously and realize we are right there with him. We relate to him. So we're going to look at his responses this morning. And what we're going to find is Moses is standing before the God of the universe, but in every response he is acting like he's completely and utterly alone. And that's what we do as Christians. right? If you are a Christian, you believe, you know, and it's actually true of you that the Spirit dwells with you, and yet you really, most of us, if we're honest, live our lives as if we're completely alone. That God's sort of back there in that quiet time, that worship service, maybe that retreat, 
And the reality is he's right there with us. He's always going with us. So I want to dig as we go through each of these questions. Each one gets closer and closer to what I think the real issue is with Moses and where we might relate with him, our identity. So right off the bat, Moses is told in verse 10 of chapter 3, you're going to go back to Egypt, where all the Hebrews are, and you're going to bring these people out. And I don't think Moses had any desire to do that. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I believe when Moses said, I am a sojourner, and named his son Gershom, meaning sojourner, that he was actually kind of happy. I don't have to deal with that anymore. I don't have to deal with Egypt and the Hebrews. I'm here. I'm good. And even in this passage, a lot of Westerners read into this and say, oh, he was probably really at his wit's end. He wanted to be rescued. I think he was plumb happy. And all of a sudden, here's God in this burning bush telling him, you're going. and You're going back, and you're going to do amazing things. And what does he say? A very uh, modern, maybe Western statement. that I'm not, It wasn't really that way, but he says, who am I? Philosophical question. Who am I? Right? Scholars would say that might have been a respectful question, a humble question. But really, if you look at all five of these statements, they really flow out of that initial statement. Who am I that you would send me? And God's answer, we're going to also track through all those responses. God responds by saying, but I will be with you. Right? And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So that serves as the framework of our discussion. We're going to go through each of Moses' questions. I love the questions of the Bible. You could do an entire study on that. We're going to look at Moses' questions, his concerns, and God's answers. So, what does Moses first do? He says, right there in chapter 13, basically, he tells God, I doubt you. I doubt you. How does he do it? Verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your father has, fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What a question. Can you imagine asking that question? What, what's your name? It actually makes a lot of sense in his context because up till this point, not, not considering Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there was no monotheistic religion. Every religion had multiple gods. And Moses, raised in Egypt, living in Midian, his father-in-law is the priest of Midian, Jethro, probably had this mindset. I'm not saying where, I don't know where he was in his own faith, but he just assumed that this god needed a name. Right? But it was a very demeaning, I think, statement. In fact, God's answer is a fascinating answer, and you could spend a lot of time on, on this answer. God answers Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. Right? You've heard of this? But that's not what he's supposed to tell the Hebrews yet. That's just Moses hearing God say, are you serious? You, I am. What is that? And that can be translated, I will be, but I will be um, in other ways. But Mo, then he goes on to tell Moses, tell them I am sent you. That's where we get the name Yahweh. God is saying to Moses, just like you are standing in front of this bush that is not being consumed, right? he's still there, this thing is on fire, it's not burning anything, it's self-existent, God is saying, I am too, I am also self-existent. I have always been, I always will be, right? Uh, every part of history, I mean, you can translate, you can unpack this as far as you want, but God is saying, nothing 
exists apart from me. I am. Now Moses is standing there, I would hope, speechless. But how do you bring that to our context? Why would that, how does that translate to us? The reality is this. We follow a lot of gods, right? We just we call them idols. It's become in our vernacular, our spiritual speech, we get this. That we we may not say that's the God of thunder or the God of, of fertility. We don't use that language. But we certainly find ourselves drawn to so many other avenues, other things to complete us. That we are idolaters, right? That we are always looking for excitement and energy apart from God. And I think what Moses is doing is he's sort of assuming there will come a moment where I will turn away from this bush, I will walk away, and what will I have? What will be the exciting thing? And so his next question, I think, really highlights this. Right after God says that, um, that he, I am who I am, Moses says, but behold, they will not believe me. Isn't that interesting? So he's showing his fear. So I want to continue to unpack the first question, but I want us to understand it's almost like he's ready to ask his next question. He's that unbelieving. Are you that unbelieving? What is so amazing about God here and why Moses, I think, shouldn't have asked the next question was he unpacks his plan. He doesn't just say, I'm going to send you there and you're going to go in and you're going to tell them who you are and they're going to walk out. He gives really specific details. If you have your Bible, follow along. Chapter 3. First of all, in 16, he says, go and gather the elders together. What is he saying there? He's saying, I, I got, I'm God. I'm omniscient. I know how they've structured. Maybe I've given them that wisdom. They follow me. And, and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to go to the elders. You're going to gather them together. And then you're going to tell them the message. And he repeats the message. I'm the, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? He gives them the, this information. I've observed you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to take you to these people's land. And it's going to be flowing with milk and honey. It's, the, it's, it's exciting. But God goes even further. He says, you're going to go to the king of, king of Egypt, verse 18, and he's not going to believe you. That's pretty impressive. I am God. He's saying, I am. I know exactly this plan. I know exactly what you're going to go through. And I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled. So in verse 20, he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians. He explains the plagues in a nutshell. And then he even ends by saying, your women are going to plunder the Egyptians. You've heard that term. You're going to go in to their camp and get. They're going to, you're going to just say, I want your stuff. I want your gold and your silver. And they're just going to hand it to you. And you're going to leave. I think we should start a whole movement like that. We could have like a really awesome cult. It just occurred to me. We could be a really wealthy cult. Sorry. But, but he hears all of this. And I think most of us, I would hope, we think we would be going, this is amazing. This is an amazing thing God is going to do. And I'm going to be a part of it. But again, I've already showed the question, what does he say? They won't believe me. Right? They won't believe me. I'm not... I, um, he comes back to looking at himself and wonders, how is it going to happen that when I get there, all of this excitement will be conveyed? We were talking about this at the youth group last week. What we're doing on Sunday nights, if you want to join us, we're going through some of the sermons. So this is exciting. We're going to go through it again. 
But really, last week what we did was we talked about the burning bush for a few minutes. And I don't see Cademan, but I'm going to pull him out, talk, tell him we talked about him. He asked a great question. I gave a horrible answer. His great question was, okay, here's this burning bush, here's Moses. After Moses walks away, not just how will the people know that was true, but how will Moses know that really happened? And I remember I had a bad answer, but I've thought about it since then. I've been kind of pondering that. It's a very wise question. Because the truth is, I think we often doubt ourselves in the absence of that moment, right? Have you ever had a, a moment of just intense, maybe it was a devotional, a worship time, someone was speaking somewhere, you were at a, at a conference, any kind of a camp, and you just, it was amazing, but you, in the back of your mind thought, when I leave, how will I retain this? How will I hold on to this? How will I convince others this really even happened? This, uh, on Friday, we were driving back from Hideaway, Grayson and I. Remember that big storm that popped up and blew through town? Grayson said, is that a tornado? Did any of you see the tornado? There was a tornado. And still one. Grayson said, is that a tornado? Now, I'm, I love weather. Doesn't, Melissa doesn't mean I'm perfect at this. But I like weather. And I thought I'm going to look up and see this kind of like tornado lookish cloud. You know, this kind of fake thing. I looked up and there was like an F-Zero funnel. And it elongated and it roped out. And I thought, Grayson, that was a tornado. And he's like, yeah, that's what I thought. You know. No, no, no. I, I think we just saw your first tornado. I saw one when I was like 10 or 11. And we're driving, and I'm like trying to see it, and then it's rain wrapped. And the whole way home, I said, no one's going to believe this. No one's going to believe this. What we need to have happen is on the weather. So we get home, and Emily's parents were visiting. That's why we got the pizza. I told her dad, her mom, I told Emily. Everyone was very friendly. I think they believed me. But I just kept thinking, no one's buying this. And it wasn't until I got the text from my mom, who didn't know I saw a tornado, that she said, did you hear there was a tornado in Payne County? I was like, yeah! It was real. So everybody, that, that doesn't really fit the sermon. I just want to tell you, I saw a tornado. Back to the sermon. No. I would not accept the reality of what I saw until I knew people had to believe me. I needed people who were smarter and wiser than me to confirm my sighting for me to almost believe it myself. And we do that with God. Right? And Moses was doing that with God. We, we, we go into our lives and into the world as orphans, as individuals, and we're thinking, I could never talk about this here. I could never expect you to understand what I experience over here or this reality of my life. And Moses is just after hearing this amazing story that God tells him, I am God, uh, I am sent you, and here's all the things I'm going to do. He immediately says, they won't listen to my voice. And he has self-doubt. Do you have that self-doubt? Do you question yourself? Do you look at yourself over and over? Because that is what's wrong with our identity. The problem with our identity as we go deeper and deeper into Moses' heart is it really is wrapped up in how do other people view me? That really is the probably the majority of what weighs on your and my mind daily. Not how does God view me. Not... Anything like it's it's really how am I coming across? How are people listening to this? How are people responding to me? How do I how do I feel about myself? And our identity becomes fractured and fragmented to the degree that we allow those thoughts to dominate. 
And I love it because what God does to Moses, he gives him three signs. You heard Abby read the signs, right? First, okay, I'll bite. They don't believe it. I'll give you three things you can do. Take this stick, throw it on the ground. It's going to turn into a snake. That's awesome. He what does he do? Throws it on the ground, picks it up, which I would have never done, and it turns back into a stick. That's great. If they don't believe that, try this one. Take your hand, put it in your, in your coat or your, your cloak, pull it out, and you have leprosy. Put it back in, it's gone. I like the stick one better, but that's pretty amazing too, right? I'd probably do the stick one and say, you don't want to see the other one, right? Because I'd be afraid, what? Oh, no. <laughs> it just works on the first part. Then thirdly, they don't believe that. The water from the Nile turns into blood. God is saying, I'm giving you three signs that you will perform, and we'll see later that he does, and they're going to believe you. I've gone to great lengths, Moses, to show you that I've called you, that I'm with you, that I, um, I'm going to be taking you there. I've got this whole plan. I've even got these perfect signs. It's in the bag. Moses says, but I'm not eloquent. I don't have, but let's read the exact verse. Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to me. In other words, I'm still the dude that can't talk well. Even though I'm in front of you, even though you're here, even though I'm having this revival experience, whatever we want to call it, I know for certain I still am not eloquent. What does God say? Oh, Moses, Moses, certainly you're eloquent. You don't realize it. You totally misjudged yourself. Is that what he says? I love it. He doesn't. That's what we would do. Oh, you speak great. You're amazing. Don't be so hard on yourself. God says, who made mouths? Right? Who made the speech? Who, who is the God that invented the ears and invented eyes and invented seeing and sensory? I am with you. In other words, yeah, you are flawed. I'm still calling you, and I'm with you. And we doubt. And what we do is we look at ourselves, and this is where I want to take this discussion, is I think we misunderstand the Christian life in this way. I say this a lot. Maybe it will come differently this time. I think most of us, when our Christianity is just dead boring, when God feels distant, if you had to explain your view of sanctification, it's a big word, Okay, justification is how do I come to know Jesus? Sanctification is how do I grow in Christ? Most of us have this view that we go to Jesus at times like this, like the Lord's Supper, or in quiet times, things we need to be doing. But then when we walk away from those times, we're on our own. And so it's really up to the quality of those experiences and the depth of those experiences to rescue us in moments of trial or difficulty. Right? And that's what we're thinking about sanctification. And yet this entire ordeal with Moses is God saying over and over, you've got it all wrong. I'm not sending you. I'm sending us. I'm going before you. I've already got Pharaoh's heart prepared for you. I've already got the Hebrews ready. They have elders. They're sitting there. It's amazing. And next week we'll look at when they show up to worship, they never even ask, who's your God? What's his name? They don't care. They already believe. God, your view of sanctification can never be what you do apart from Jesus. Or it's flawed. And unfortunately, I think that's the dominant view of the American culture. 
Christianity. That if you worship right, if you live right, if you do it right, then on your own, you will have all the reservoir, all the, all the ammunition you need to make it through each moment. And it's just not true. Apart from Christ, you are useless. So we live in union with Christ. We live constantly in worship with Him. Remember when Peter gets out of the boat? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He gets out of the boat. He stands there. He's looking at Jesus. And then what? He looks down. He looks at himself. And he starts to sink. I think that most of us go wrong because we think of worship as something we do separate from our daily lives. And really, when you look at this passage, there's something we kind of moved over in verse 12 that is really the dominant statement and the dominant theme of this section. Verse 12 says, but I will be with you. Okay, we already talked about that. And this shall be the sign for you. And there's a lot of debate. What's the sign? What's the sign? Is it the three things? And, and the answer is this. That when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will worship Yahweh. In three months' time, they will be exiting Egypt, coming back to this place, Mount Sinai, and they'll be worshiping God for the first time as a community. And that is what he's talking about, worship. And so, the question then, as you think about your identity, where does the word worship play in to identity? In our culture, we talk about identity a lot. We have self-esteem. We have books on, on codependence. There's a lot of information out there about identity, but we really don't tie it out there in the secular realm to worship but I would argue, as of many people, that your identity is really squarely based on what your view of worship is. What do you worship? What do you look to? G.K. Chesterton says this, Knowing ourselves means that we see ourselves as worshipers of God. When a man ceases to worship God, he does not seem to worship, he just worships anything. When a man is not worshiping God, or woman, or child, or it's not that you've stopped worshiping. You just started worshiping what? Yourself. The things that make you feel complete. Your spouse. Your, your, your occupation. Your fantasy. And We are made to worship. And what God is saying throughout Exodus and throughout this portion is, I am not just rescuing my people. I am rescuing my people. Why? So that they may worship me. Now, a lot of us struggle with that because we think of worship as like right now like I'm ready for lunch this has been going on for about an hour hour and 20 don't look at the clock um, but I want to encourage you that if you could understand what your heart is doing all the time you would begin to realize you're looking for things to complete you and you're not looking to Christ alone and Moses standing there before this bush though he believed though he was completely, eventually all in, he really did have this sense that he was sort of going to go off by himself and try to complete it and do it. And that will never work. So is that your view of worship? Well, someday Moses would be at a different mountain. And we're going to actually look at that next week, right? The Mount of Transfiguration, right? And we'll, we'll glance at that a little bit next week, but here is Moses up on a mountain with Elijah and Jesus, and there's Moses. And what does Peter want to do? He wants to worship them. Peter wants to respond to the glory he has 
with worship. Because it is beautiful. Because He is radiant. Because this is what God is making you. Now, we don't worship man, of course. But that's the beauty of God's restoration and redemption. And is that your longing to be restored to where you would worship Jesus and look like Him in such a way that if people could see you now, they would be tempted to worship you. That's not the goal. But the idea of, of sanctification and growth is that we would so be so close to who Jesus is that you couldn't tell us apart. Right? We see this in John 8. John 8, um, Jesus begins His I Am statements. They're, the Pharisees are sort of after Him. They're on the path to get Him. And He says, If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is My Father who glorifies Me. Of you, whom you say, He's talking to the Pharisees who are Jews, He is your God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I'd be a liar like you. <laughs> Very gentle. But I do not know Him and I keep His word. Or, but I do know Him and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he, he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, just so he could get a rise out of them. Listen to what he says. He could have just walked away. He said, that was pretty powerful. I'll wait. But he just goes ahead and finishes it. The Jews are standing there, shocked at what he said. And he goes, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus. He's in the bush. He's come to earth. He's lived this perfect life that we may have true worship through our union with Christ. We are now completely in union with the Father through Jesus. I am, he says. So I want to read this poem by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Moses, we started this sermon off by Moses saying, Who am I? And Bonhoeffer is a Lutheran theologian at the time of World War II in Germany. He uh, ended up being captured and taken to a concentration camp where he was executed. And he left behind many writings, including this poem. I know you're tired. I know you want this sermon to be over. I, I promise if you will just listen to his words, it will tie in and you will be blessed. So here what Bonhoeffer says, who remember is in a concentration camp as he writes this. Who am I? They often tell me. I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly. He was known for how he, in the midst of his confinement, was able to not act like a prisoner. That's what, he's, that's what this poem is talking about. Like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me, I bore the day's misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Here's what he knows of himself. That's what he appears to other men. Listen to what he knows of himself. Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing 
in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others? Before myself, a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still, like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me. These lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, Thou knowest, O God, I am Thine. That's what its conclusion is. Who am I? I am Thine. You are no longer yourself apart from your Savior. You are no longer to see yourself apart from God. And when you do, your identity is fracturing before your very eyes. That's where anxiety comes from. That's where questions of of self come from. That's where... uh, just habits of sin begin to develop or perpetuate. But when we come to the Father and worship because of what Jesus has done, we are completely and utterly the way we were meant to be in union with Christ. Is that what your identity is in? Is that what you live out of daily? Because that is what He offers you. Not that you would go out and perform good works on your own, but that you would go out and live the life He has already called you and made you to live. 